Good morning and welcome to Encounter Church. Thank you for being here today. My name is Chris Causey, if this is your first time to lead pastor. And if you're joining us online for the first time, I want to say thank you for being here as well. Um, we've kind of been blown away in the last two months since we've reopened weekly. Um, there's been probably 40, 50 people who've come here for the first time. So one of the things that we're just constantly reminding you is that there's probably someone sitting beside you um, who today is the first time they're here. So there's some things that I say frequently, and it's because I know that you and I know it, but not everyone knows it. So one of those things is that we have an app for you. Uh, we've created it. Um, in fact, there's a new resource that just dropped in it to this weekend that um, for parents that is incredible. Like you, I mean, it's just an, an amazing resource that's already there. Um, you can download that app, counterchurch.com forward slash app. It's free. We're not tracking you. We're not selling your information. We don't care why you're, where you're buying clothes or groceries, and we're not selling that to advertisers, okay? So that is a free app just for you. Um, if you want us to know where you're buying groceries, I mean, I guess you could just let us know, but we really don't care, okay? So um, that app is there. It's for you, and it's free. So uh, what I want to do today is wrap up a conversation I've been having for about a month with you. It was originally a series that it didn't tend to go too long. It was meant to just be a message, and then it kind of teased out and became really an entire month series. And if you've kind of been tracking along, we've been discussing what does it look like to be the church. Um, and what I was originally going to kind of hit on this month was really after this initial one series, kind of like sermon around the church, I was going to jump into some emotional health stuff because the, the resource that dropped today for parents is all about emotional, social, and spiritual health for your children. Phenomenal resource that we've put in there for you that you can't get anywhere else. Um, we've licensed it for you inside the app. That's why you're not going to find it on any of our other platforms. So it's only in the app. Um, but that was kind of to go along with this emphasis on emotional, kind of social health just in general as we're kind of emerging out of what will be a life-defining moment for us as a people with the pandemic. And, uh, and then I kind of called the audible with the series and leaned in. And the series has been called Like Stars in the Sky because this idea of what does it look like to shine. So today I want to actually kind of merge because there was an element of the, the, the message that I wanted to hit that um, in the church that was able to kind of interweave into last week. So if you have called up to this point, you have everything you need around the church. Today what I want to do is um, lean in and actually kind of wrap up this series with a little bit of the, the mental, emotional component wrapped in. And here's why. Um, I talk to a lot of pastors. I'm connected to some networks of guys around the U.S. And um, have spent a lot of time with them throughout this pandemic with some retreats and some potential gatherings that we've had. And one of the things, even this week, was talking to a guy who just felt like giving up. And for a lot of us, maybe you don't know this, but there's been a, a large group of pastors who've almost kind of just walked away from ministry, probably in the same way in all of the other fields, because this has been hard. And um, I've had this same conversation with a lot of different people privately, and even recorded a leadership talk um, last week um, with a, a group for pastors for this very talk. And I when I was talking to a friend of mine who was like, man, just in a dark place, he was like, this is a message. Like, have you, know, like, have you preached this? And I'm like, no. Like, this is a conversation. He's like, well, dude, I think you got a, you got a message. And I was like, okay. So 
I figured I'm sharing this with other people. I haven't shared it with you. So I want to give you perhaps the worst message I'll ever preach to you. But those who have had private conversations with nobody in this room but or nobody online, but uh, outside of this group. So that's what I want to do today. I am going to be open to all the audibles and in light of just the fact that we're dropping a phenomenal resource for emotional social health for your family, for your kids. Let's just talk about the reality of how do we shine when, I don't know about you, it feels a little dull right now. I feel a little dull right now. This pandemic is like the child's song, John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt, it's never going to end. It just keeps going on and on, my friend. And, um, you know, we're all learning the Greek alphabet together, right? We're up to Delta, but there's Omega, so we got a ways to go with this thing before we get into double Greek alphabets. So why not, all right? So how do we navigate, survive, make it through when everything inside of you wants to wave a white flag? And to kind of and start the conversation with you that I've had with a lot of other people. I want to take you to quite possibly my favorite story in the New Testament. Um, I don't know why it's my favorite. Uh, Maybe it's because I like MacGyver, but we'll find out, right? Um, It's found in Mark chapter 2. I've already preloaded this for you in the message app and the Encounter Church app. If you don't have that, it's actually going to be on the screen. I'll work through it. Mark chapter 2, just a few verses and we're immediately in the story. But here's the thing I want you to know. Mark is written, um, it's one of the four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark is named after the author, Mark, who um, most likely received all of his source material from Peter, the apostle. Okay, Mark was a traveling companion of Paul, was an early kind of pioneer in the church that was moving and expanding and growing. And in the course of that, Mark spends time with Peter And here's the personal account. And the reason we think it's Peter is because um, in the original language Mark writes in, you get this very distinct personality that Mark has that you don't find in any of the other gospel biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. Um, You get this action, like packed, fast moving, like this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It's like, it's like talking to one of those friends that jump really fast. You, you have those friends when they're sharing a story and it's like they start and then it's very quickly they're here and then they're here and then somehow, I don't know, they're in a car wreck and then they're in the hospital and then it's Christmas time and you're trying to track how that story just moved that fast. That's the book of Mark. That's how he writes because that's how Peter was. And so Mark chapter 2, when we jump into this, we find... Um, that my clicker doesn't like me. And what we find in Mark chapter 2, we're going to figure this thing out real quick. There we go. It says, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So here's the backdrop just to set the stage for what's about to happen. Um, Jesus has just initially started his ministry, and he's already become essentially viral. Okay, So you think TikTok and YouTube and whatever other thing that we happen to enjoy spending our time mindlessly scrolling through is a new phenomenon to humans. It is not. Human beings have always done this, right? We love killing time. We love being curious. And in the ancient world, when it wasn't people, you know, doing this with music and changing clothes really fast on a TikTok video, what happened back then was people loved hearing speakers. And Jesus is a speaking teacher really compelling storyteller, and so crowds are being drawn to him. But on top of that, Jesus has this incredible ability to perform miracles, which has really attracted a ton of attention. 
And Jesus essentially becomes viral. Everybody wants to see and hear Jesus. On top of that, this is a season not like today, but this early kind of ancient people, modern medicine was not even a concept yet, right? The idea of viruses wasn't really kind of solidified until about 100 years ago. And so this idea of medicine was horrible. I mean, you're more inclined likely to die than to live after being treated medically. And the average life expectancy was about 40 at this point. Okay, so we're a completely different era. But because of all that, medicine was a really big deal. Healings were a really, really big deal. Because the common thing that you and I might go to a doctor and get an antibiotic for might be the reason you die in this generation. So Jesus is performing medical miracles, and he's compelling storyteller, and so naturally he's a hit. To the point that in previous section, we find out he can't even go anywhere without being kind of mobbed by people. So Jesus has been hiding, and he's been in what Mark called lonely places, trying to avoid crowds, and in the process, the crowds have died down, people have gone back to work, and Jesus returns to his hometown of Capernaum. Most likely, he's not going home to his house, he's going to Peter's house, which will become relevant in a second. And that as he's there, people heard that he'd come home. It's blowing up. People are texting each other. They're like, have you heard? Jesus is back. And so what happens as a result of that is that they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. So you kind of imagine uh, narrow streets, really small homes, and people are, there's no locks on the door. So people have pushed their way into Simon's house. They're surrounding Jesus. Um, there's such a large crowd that they've completely flooded outside the door, and now they're filling the streets outside and around Simon Peter's house. And we find out that as this crowd is gathered, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands, we don't know, but we know it's just enough that it's completely jam-packed the whole area around the house. It says that some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And so they arrive on the scene, and what they see is a huge crowd of people, and clearly there's no way they're getting in. So, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they looked down at their friend and they said, Sorry, ma'am, this place is crowded, and there's no way we're getting through that door. And then he looked up, responded, It's okay, you try. Right? That's not the actual story just in case you're reading through, that's what it says, not Mark, at the bottom. Okay, this is the Chris version because this is what should have happened. We should have seen the storyline turn to this. And rightfully so, the man would have said, you know what, it's okay, you tried. As a parent, you've been there, right? Hey, we're going to go grab this or we're going to go get a seat or we're going to buy a ticket or we're going to get that toy and it's like, oops, sorry, sold out. Oh, sorry, seats completely filled, no room, we're done. And that's what most of us would have done. But what actually happens is that they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then they lowered the mat the man was laying on. Phenomenal. Way different storyline, right? 
vandalism. I mean, I love it. <laughs> right? It's just a completely different storyline than what most of us would have done. But here's the problem when we read the Bible separated by 2,000 years. And this some, if you've ever been through one of our book studies like we did with 2 Timothy this summer or um, you've been through the 112, you know, one of the things that I try to do when I'm teaching you how to study the Bible is to bring it four-dimensionally alive, right, to, to be able to read through the context and to see it, but also to kind of slow down time while we're reading the text. Because if you slow down the storyline, something happens that you can miss that's really important. In fact, I would argue that there is a really important part of this story that we can easily miss, and it's this comma. Just this small, tiny pause. Because we read it as a sentence, but they lived it as a situation. And it's moving at the pace of life, not the speed of a sentence. And when you slow it down, what emerges in this, I think, is something that's really critical for us all to grab hold of. So they arrive and they look, and they don't experience what I think should have been the natural response, discouragement. They don't say, sorry, man, sorry, bud, didn't work out. To which, rightfully so, I, as a friend, this is an, a mission impossible. You're carrying me to a man who's going to change my life and allow me to walk after my entire life I haven't been able to walk? I mean, this is a pipe dream at best. Like, hey, dudes, thanks for believing in me. I know your arms probably hurt. Like, I really appreciate it. Like, you're, you're, my, you're my guys. Like, you're my friend. Quite honestly, if, you, if you've got friends like that who are willing, I mean, do you have friends if you were collapsed on a mat that would carry you for miles? Right? I mean, like, some of our friends would be like, dude, no offense, you're heavy. I, I, I ain't got time for that, right? I mean, so you would just, if you're this guy, you're genuinely appreciative. You've got friends who would carry you in hopes of you getting better. Super cool. But what his friends do is not respond with discouragement. And here's one of the things I've learned through the pandemic that I've been able to tease out that this story has helped me grab clarity. I think that there's always going to be an emotional response when we hit what feels like breakdown. Whether it's breakdown in society like we've experienced, whether it's the breakdown of a dream, whether it's the breakdown of a relationship, whether it's the breakdown of our finances, whether it's the breakdown of a romantic relationship, like we're all going to experience that emotion that's heavy and strong in the midst of a breakdown. And that's what we have here. This pause represents the breakdown. They stop. And I think discouragement is an emotional response to a breakdown. But the storyline it tells you is this. When you have discouragement, you say it's never going to happen. It can't happen. It won't happen. Maybe it's struggling with getting pregnant. Or maybe it's struggling with an addiction. Or maybe it's struggling to find a job. And what do we do? As a self-protective measure, we say it's never going to happen. And as a way to protect ourselves emotionally, we wave the white flag. We give in, we surrender, we step away. 
the not marked version, we look down to our friend and say, sorry, bud, I tried. We can come back tomorrow. But they don't do that. They don't respond that way. I think they experienced the emotion of breakdown. But what they did was they didn't buy into the lie that often comes with the discouragement. See, I think what they actually did was respond with desperation. Whereas discouragement says, this can't happen, this won't happen. Desperation says, this has to happen. Where discouragement says, there's no way. Desperation says, there is a way. Where discouragement says, well, it was an if at best. Desperation says, no, this is a how question. And I think that very subtle difference is significant in what follows. Because if discouragement had been the dominant emotion and storyline of this moment, they would have walked away and we never would have seen this story. I don't know how many people showed up that day carrying people on mats, but I will bet money that they weren't the only ones who had a friend that day. But they're the only ones that day who said there has to be a way. They had desperation. They had a determination. This, there is a way. This has got to work. Discouragement says wave a white flag. Desperation says I'm going to charge that hill and I'm going to plant that flag. Two fundamental different responses to the same emotion of disappointment. And it's all contained in the comma. Which is why when we read the Bible, we want to slow it down because you could miss that. You can take it for granted that they were like, oh, let's just vandalize the house. And we move on. But if you're a parent struggling with relationally connecting with your child, if you choose discouragement or you choose desperation, you have two different outcomes. If you're looking for a job and you choose discouragement over desperation, two different outcomes. You're walking through an addiction or a marriage that feels like it's falling apart. You choose discouragement or you choose desperation. Two different outcomes. That's why we want to slow down. Pay attention to the pause. Because desperation says, what's the background of my computer right now actually says, you didn't come this far to only come this far. They look at their friend, they're like, sorry, bud. We bought a one-way ticket. I'm not carrying you back. I brought you this far. My arms hurt. You clearly can't walk back. So we've got to walk through. And we've got to get you in front of Jesus. Because we bought a one-way ticket today. And in doing so, they demonstrate to us the power of desperation. We want to kind of shirk off emotion, but they actually... Instead of rejecting it, they redirect the emotion and they allow it to channel and make the shift to the issue of how, not if. So February um, 2017, Mauritania, which is a small African nation on the East Coast, it borders the Atlantic Ocean. It's really large, but because it's predominantly filled with the Sahara, um, it's not a very large population country. And Mauritania is, um, only has one airline. In February 25th, 
2007. Uh, one of those airlines, a Boeing 737, is taking off headed to Gran Canaria, which is an island owned by Spain off the coast of Africa. As they get up into the air, what they didn't realize is that sitting in the back of the plane was a hijacker who had a couple semi-automatic guns. And as the plane got up into the air, he made a run for the cockpit and he got in. And when he got into the cockpit, he told the pilot, take him to Paris, because he was trying to escape the country. And the pilot looks at him and says, man, France is a five-hour flight from here. We only have a fuel, enough fuel for the hour-and-a-half flight to the island. And he says, fine, send me to Morocco instead. And he said, well, we can't make it to Morocco. Morocco won't take us because you're on the plane hijacking us. And so the pilot says, look, least let us land in Gran Canaria. We can reload the plane fuel-wise, and then we can get you to Paris. And the hijacker assumes, well, you know what? I'm the only one on the plane with guns. We're all stuck in this thing together. Let's just do it that way then. But what the hijacker didn't know was that pretty close into the conversation, the pilot noticed something. He noticed that while he was talking to the air traffic controllers in Morocco, speaking French, that the hijacker couldn't understand him. So Mauritania, about 15% of the population speaks French. Um, but a disproportionate amount of French speakers fly because speaking French is often associated with a higher socioeconomic status, Mauritania. And so the captain realizes this guy doesn't speak French, but a bulk of my plane does. So he begins to communicate with the air traffic controllers and with the passengers and the crew on the plane in French. He tells them in French that, hey, we're going to land in Gran Canaria, and when I hit the ground, I'm going to hit it extra hard. I'm going to rev the engine, and I'm going to nail the brakes. The hijacker is going to fall. I want all the passengers in the back of the plane bolted in. Air crew, I want you at the front of the plane ready to pounce when I hit the brakes because he's going to go down. And all along, the hijacker's just like, ha, 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 right? And so sure enough, the captain hits the ground, bam, boom, you know, in that like jarring bolt where you're like, how is this safe when they reverse the thrust and they hit the brakes? He does that at a level that's terrifying, and the hijacker goes flying, hits the ground, guns scatter, and the crew, in the moment after, unbuckles knowing the pilot has done, and they jump on him, they restrain him, they take him off, and he gets 17 years in prison. Incredible story. And I think what that pilot understood was he was like, I'm making it home today. It's not an issue of if, it was an issue of how am I going to make it home today. He had a desperation. And that desperation bred an innovation, creativity. Because when it's a question of how, you do whatever it takes. You even get outside the box and think unconventionally. You stop seeing things for how they could be or how they only are, and you start to imagine how they could be, right? Which is what you actually see in the text. It says they made an opening in the roof. No, 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 no. That is boring in the English. Okay, you have to realize Peter is telling Mark this story. 
And Mark is writing this story in the language of the day. And in the language of the day, what Mark writes, this is Peter's house, right? Like, this is Peter's Home Depot built. This is Peter's permit he has to pull in Capernaum to get a repair. So Mark's like, well, what was it like? He didn't say they made an opening. The, he, the actual words is they unroofed my roof. That's actually what it says. They unroofed my roof. That's different than making an opening. That's not a skylight. That's like they unroofed my roof, Mark. I, I had to go to Home Depot and spent a lot of money to re-roof my roof that they unroofed. And Mark, wanting to really capture it, it's like, okay, so Peter, they unroofed your roof? Yeah, these crazy fools climbed up the side of my house, got on top of my house, and they unroofed it, and they lowered a man in a mat through my new skylight. Well, how did they even do that, Peter? They did it by digging through it. Right? So the little first century construction techniques for you. So um, the first century roofs, the, what's often called the upper room, um, was a really efficient design. They would actually oftentimes, not every house would have a second floor that was covered. A lot of times they would refer to their roof as a second floor. And the way they would do this is the, the houses were small. So whether it was like cut down trees or really thick branches, they would layer them on top of the house to create the beginning of a roof. And then they would come, and they would take really thick mud, and they would essentially like spackle the rest of it and solidify it. And sometimes they would tile it. But that was the roof of the average first century Palestinian home. So when Mark is giving you the details of unroofing, it means by digging through it, they literally with their fingernails and with shoes and whatever else they had in their pockets, scrape the dry mud. So picture you're in a room like this, we're all crowded, and we hear the entire time Jesus is talking, with dust falling. And then we see a little pin light and we hear someone say, I got through. And someone else like, unroof it. And they're like starting to rip branches out. And so it's going from a pinhole to a skylight to a stairwell opening. And then it gets dark again because there is a man on a mat and his friends are foolishly lowering him. Because they're like, there's Jesus right in front of him. This is all playing out. They unroofed it, and they dug through it. And Jesus is sitting there watching the vandalism happen, and Peter is sitting there, and he is counting how much money he's going to have to spend. And I love how the story plays out, because these guys were willing to stop at nothing. Here's what I'm convinced of. If two people walk into a room and they're both committed to making a marriage work, I don't care how bad it is. You're willing to do the work, and this is what I tell people when I sit down with them. You're willing to do the work, both of you. Okay, don't be putting it off on the other person, right? But if both of you are willing to do the work, we can make this work. I think as a parent, right, I have learned the art of being a really good doll player 
and princess enabler, and I have learned and embraced how to storytell all kinds of little Barbie figurines. Why? Because that's the doorway into my little girl's world. As Now, did I wake up being like, I really, really want to play Barbies today? No, but there's a desperation that I really deeply, desperately want to connect with my little girl. And I know that there are so many people out there trying to connect with her, and it's even easier for them than it is for me. And I refuse to let them be the biggest, loudest voice in her life. So whatever it takes. Right? Like, we get this. Desperation in a healthy way can breed innovation, creativity. Maybe you were a small business owner during the pandemic, and you had a desperation, like, I'm not shutting this thing down. And you pivoted. You did things different. Desperation is a gift. It's the gift that allows us to take what we were convinced was going to be breakdown and turn it into breakthrough. And in the poss possibilities and process, we experience so much more than we ever imagined. And I love how the story goes. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, notice it says their faith, not the paralyzed man's faith, the, the vandalizers, their faith. He said, son, your sins are forgiven which is a really interesting response. Because here's the thing I want to leave you with. I, I, I don't want to leave you with just, oh, okay, here's the formula for breakthrough. It's redirect the emotion of discouragement into desperation. Desperation shifts you from if to how. And then how is a matter of innovation and figuring it out. That's helpful. But if that's all I give you, that's hype. That's an internet meme. That's a Peloton instructor screaming at you through a video screen. That's Tony Robbins. It's not life change. It's hype. And what I love about what Jesus did here was he takes the conversation to a whole deeper level because here's what Jesus knows. Here's what you already know. Sometimes when you get to a breakdown, there is no breakthrough. If you've ever sat in the room, with your spouse who doesn't want the marriage to go on. No amount of desperation in you is going to make it happen. No amount of desperation is going to change the diagnosis from the doctor. No amount of desperation is going to bring a child back that doesn't want to come back. There's a point in all of our lives where that little formula just leaves us standing alone, looking at broken pieces. And Jesus, in his grace, doesn't say to the man what he could have said first, which is, you're forgiven. No, you're healed. No, he says, you're forgiven. Because he's wanting to make sure that before he addresses this surface problem, that he wants to drive beyond hype. He wants to drive beyond the crowd. You see, there's something unique. Mark only uses the word crowd in a negative way. Mark uses crowd like 49 times in his letter, which is a relatively short biographical account of the life of Jesus. And he uses crowd every single time in a negative way. It's the passive group. It's the people surrounding Jesus. It's never the people, never ever in the book of Mark do you see crowd associated with people who follow Jesus. There are the people who are curious about Jesus. There are people who are kind of spectating, watching the viral videos of Jesus. But they never ever 
moved to being a follower. They're just a fan. And he knows he's got a group of them in the room. And so that's why he says, your sins are forgiven. Because every theologian in the room just got really upset with Jesus. It says, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're like, why? Why is he doing And Jesus is setting them up because he knows they're all thinking, right? That, like he says immediately, Jesus knew in the spirit that, that's, that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? And that is an impossible question to answer. Because they want to say, well, the easier thing to say is get up and take your mat and walk. But they know they can't say it because they can't make the man stand up and walk. Because they know the impossible thing, the thing that only God can say, is this, your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus has put them in an impossible situation. He's making them confront who he really is and what's at the core hope of his message. He says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man, which is a a reference to the Jewish scriptures, the book of Daniel, that, that spoke about the promised one. If you've been here a little bit, you remember that I tell you, inside of the Jewish scriptures, there are two central promises that guide all the Jewish scriptures that we call the Old Testament. There's the promised land and the promised one. So the Son of Man was a reference to the promised one. Now the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, so that he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And in one fell swoop, By doing that, by ordering the operation the way he did it, he demonstrated not only did he have power to heal, but he had power to solve humanity's deepest problem. So he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them. Imagine being that guy. Your friends brought you there, and now you get to walk home with them. Coolest moment ever. He's like, hey, you guys remember you were carrying me here? don't have to do that now, do you? How's your arms feel? My arms feel good. How's your arms? Are they sore? Right? Like he's a whole different person. But here's what Jesus knew. This man, with all the physical healing, the impossibility of having his legs restored and being able to run, I don't know, maybe like I'm thinking if Jesus gives you the hookup in your legs, you might be like Usain Bolt fast. I mean, I'm just saying. Like, I'd have probably been like, you want to race? You want to race? Let's race home, right? I mean, I would have just been like racing people because I'm like, Jesus hooked these legs up. You know they fast. Like, where's Usain Bolt? I want to, come on, man. Come on. I got Jesus' legs. But what he knows, what Jesus understands is that man, while he walks home, one day he will die still. So Jesus' healing was temporary. Man still passed away. He still got old. His legs still got frail and fragile. What Jesus was demonstrating is he had a power for a different, more greater breakthrough. A resource that goes so much beyond hype. It's a resource of hope that he, as that beautiful name, is that chain breaker that breaks every chains, including the one chain that no amount of physical exercise, no amount of supplements, no amount of surgery, no amount of exercising like and reading is ever, ever going to make that human body live forever. He's like, I've got the one solution to the one problem you will never fix. Modern medicine may get us to 120, but it will not get us to 121. And so he's like, I've come to solve the deeper problem. 
the one of separation, the one of your soul that cries out to live forever with a body that can't, the one that looks to the certainty of death with fear, and I've come to replace it with peace because those who trust me and follow me and who have faith in me believe that I don't just bring the physical healing, I don't just physically reorder, that I am doing this physical healing to demonstrate that I have the power to spiritually heal. Because while many of us in this room are physically okay, we all were born with spiritual sickness that will kill us. And Jesus demonstrated in that moment that his power to heal physically was really just a way of illustrating the deeper power to heal. And when we walk in an awareness that that's who we serve, that's who we follow as Christians, when we walk in a light of who he is and what he has done and what he has brought victory through, it changes how we look at everything around us. It allows us, I believe sincerely, to be people who shine like stars in the sky because even if our circumstances are breaking down, I believe that there's a God whose power of resurrection living inside of me has the power to not allow the circumstances to define me, to not allow my situation to end me. That that comma, on the day that, Lord willing, none of you show up to my funeral because I outlive all of you with long hair, right? But on the day that my funeral is done, that people will know he's not dead. He's alive. And whatever coffin is present in that room is just a comma of the space in between, of the victory that he's brought within. And that knowing that the biggest enemy of sin and death has been conquered allows me to walk with a different perspective a different set of hope, to believe the best is still possible in any situation I find myself in, to believe that the people that I interact with could be the best because of him and the story of life change he can write in them. And the reason all this matters, because as a church, when we start to collectively think that, this is what I believe happens, that everyone watched and it amazed them and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. They had never witnessed what hope can do when it intersects on earth. And at the very beginning of this series, I told you that we have the distinct holy privilege, if we are Christ followers, of being installers of heaven on earth. We get to install a picture and a glimpse of heaven in the way that we interact, in the way that we love, in the way that we serve, in the way we engage, the way we forgive, the way we release bitterness, the way we walk and struggle for freedom every single day as we're overcoming addictions or walking through the valley of darkness and death with sickness and decreasing health. That by us walking and moving, that people watching see something different and distinct. They see him in you in me and we're installing that heaven on earth and people get a glimpse of what peace and joy actually really looks like that when people lash out at you you get to love up instead of pull down because we're installers of heaven when people hurt you and it hurts you that you don't allow their harm to you to become the headline of your life that's over you 
that in our relationships in every sphere, we get to install heaven. And in the process, I think people get to see him. That's why I'm so excited about this church, so excited about our future, so excited about what God's doing. Because if we're all collectively willing to lean in, then we really will shine like stars in the sky. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the grace and the mercy that comes through you, Jesus. Thank you that you bring breakthrough. Not just breakthrough in the physical realm, but you bring breakthrough in that deepest realm of our heart and our life, of the chains that collectively um, restrain us from having the relationship with you. Thank you for your victory over sin and over death. Thank you for your victory. Thank you for your grace, for your forgiveness, for the way that you release us from shame and guilt, for the way that you remind us that you can provide for us and that you've provided every single day before us and that you will continue to provide for us. Thank you that you are the sustainer, the deliverer, the rescuer, the healer, the comforter, the friend the Lord and the Savior of our lives. That there really is no one like you. God, thank you for that beautiful name, that incredible name, that name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.